0: So, Julie, I just had the best fishing trip of my life last Thursday. We caught a ton of tuna off the shores of North Carolina. It was phenomenal.
1: You're making me hungry, John. I can't wait to hear more about that <laughs> trip.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, we had a conversation with uh, with a portfolio manager at Wellington Management named Matt Baker. And uh, and Matt himself is a pretty big fisherman. And Julie reminded me of when I was out there thinking about the conversation that we recently had with Matt about how fishing relates to dividend-paying stocks, who would guess?
1: I certainly didn't. It surprised me. But we are joined today by Matthew Baker, who's the Senior Managing Director, Partner, and Equity Portfolio Manager in Global Equity Portfolio Management on the Quality Equity Team. He is the Lead Portfolio Manager of the Hartford Dividend and Growth Fund. He manages equity assets on behalf of our clients, drawing on research from Wellington Management's global industry analysts, equity portfolio managers, and team analysts. He currently manages the quality value approach and provides research on the consumer, industrial, and material sectors for his team. He works in the Wellington Management's Boston office. Prior to joining Wellington in 2004, Matt worked as an equity analyst in the Central Research Group at MFS Investment Management leading the global capital goods team. And before that, he worked as an investment specialist at Bank Boston. Matt earned his MBA from the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, and his BS in finance from Northeastern University.
0: And I can't wait for our podcast listeners to listen in on this conversation, so let's go. Hi, I'm John.
1: And I'm Julie.
0: We're the hosts of the Hartford Funds Human-Centric Investing Podcast
1: every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here today on our human-centric investing podcast.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: So, Matt, I have to ask you, we're at an interesting time in the investment markets, and uh, given that your expertise kind of in those dividend-paying stocks, it seems like Investors have been chasing the returns on growth stocks for years and years and years now. It's hard to remember that last value cycle almost that we had. Probably a lot of financial professionals weren't even in the business the last time we saw, you know, kind of a favoring of of value oriented or dividend paying stocks. What do you think is behind the shift that we've seen recently? And I know no one has a crystal ball, but do you think that maybe there's a newfound appreciation for dividends in the markets?
2: You know, it's, it's interesting, right? So you, you mentioned uh, a pretty interesting time right now. I think that, that corresponds with my career, right? So I started in 2000 in the industry, right in the middle of the dot com bubble, and then, you know, had a little bit of a, a reprieve and then the great financial crisis, and, you know, now, now the inflationary environment we're in now. So um, these unique periods don't really seem to be too unique when you look at it over a long period of time. Um, you know, there tends to be shocks every once in a while, but you're absolutely right over the past, you know, call it 12 to 15 years, since a great financial crisis, um, gross stocks have had an outsized return versus value stocks. If you look historically, the relationship, you know, over the past 15 years, 12 to 15 years has gotten very much out of whack. So if you start at the point of one to one, right, so growth and value are equal. Um, over the past five or so years, that relationship has favored growth by about 40%. Um, I do wanna say something real quick though, before we you know, kind of jump a little further down this discussion, which is that you know, in this environment, a lot of the debate has been between growth and value. We need to change that debate going forward, right? Because it's not necessarily uh, a choice between growth and value. There's problems on both sides. You know, in an inflationary environment, it's not just the growthy companies that have high valuations that are problematic. It's also the value companies that I would describe more as deeper value companies that are also problematic. Uh, Those companies probably don't have the ability to maintain their margins in an inflationary environment, and those are going to be, you know, kind of tough stocks to be in. So really what the the sweet spot is, if you will, is is kind of the core right in the middle. It's those companies that have a long history of generating cash flow um, consistently and raising that cash flow and then paying dividends and raising dividends consistently over time. Those are the companies that tend to outperform in more problematic environments.
1: It's interesting, Matt, you know, you talk about that there are challenges on both sides of the coin, whether we're looking at growth or value stocks. And I think it always occurs to me that times like this are an opportunity for a financial professional, maybe to step back and and re-educate him or herself on some of the factors, and then in turn, you know, have engaging and interesting and educational and coaching conversations with their clients. If you were sitting in a financial professional seat right now, with clients that are uneasy or concerned or just really wanting to understand more what would some of those talking points be uh from a from a financial professional's perspective
2: well i think it's you know it's time frame right and so what i mean by that is if you think about the last so i I started in the in this industry in um the year 2000. So i've been in the industry for 22 years and i have gray hair and i guess i'm kind of more senior in the industry these days but i've only been in this industry for 22 years and you know as far as i know uh, there was one point i think it was maybe a two-week period in 2005 where inflation was maybe a marginal concern so what that means is unless you have more gray hair than me you probably haven't seen inflation you probably haven't seen you know, an environment where stagflation was being talked about or, you know, a rising interest rate environment. And so what's interesting about that is the playbook that most investors would use or talk about, or the way they think about investing in stocks, um, you know, is fairly new. Um, And if you think about that playbook over the past 15 years, you'd probably want to fill a portfolio up with some very, um, you know, big, fast growing, Tech companies, and that's great. You're trying to maximize the potential for alpha. But I think what was forgotten over that period, because we didn't really have a bear market with the exception of 2008, and as bad as that was, it was fairly short-lived. Um, you know, you you forget that dividends historically have pretty much accounted for about 50% of the overall total return of a market. And in some environments, specifically in the 70s and into the 80s, where you have inflation and stagflation, that actually goes way up, right? So in the 70s into the 80s, the percentage of the total return coming from dividends was more like 75%. So, you know, dividends have always been an important part of an overall portfolio. I think it's just been forgotten about over the past, um, you know, 15 years or so when, when that percent of the overall return of the market has gone way down. However, if you think about the environment over the past 15 years, there was nothing normal about it in the context of history. We had interest rates at zero, pretty much. We had quantitative easing the whole time um, and you were, were rewarded for taking risk. The problem with that though, is if you think about the more growthy stocks over time, they tend to return maybe a little bit more Um, than quote unquote, you know, more stable stocks. However, that's only in good times, right? If you look at the standard deviation around those returns, so in other words, how much volatility there is around those returns, it's the the more stable stocks are, um, you know, over time, return a much more favorable uh, total return because when you go down less, in a tough market, what you're actually doing is you're compounding that value more over the course of a cycle. So when we think about investing, we're not thinking about investing for this year. We're not thinking about investing for you know the next six months. We're thinking about investing over the course of a long cycle. And you have to have the ability to protect on the downside during those volatile times. And really the way to do that is with companies that have recently started to pay a dividend or have a consistent history of paying and raising dividends and have less volatility than maybe the average growth stock out there. So, Matt, the idea of
0: dividend paying stocks in an inflationary environment, as you as an investor look at these companies, is it that with inflationary pressures on the companies themselves that they'll take in more revenue, hopefully they'll stick to their pattern of increasing dividends? Is that your expectation versus perhaps a a company that doesn't pay dividends? you know, no telling how and where they're going to be able to reinvest. So is, is the strategy with dividends that you're looking for consistency in either maintaining or maybe even increasing uh, the rate of their dividend?
2: Yeah. So with everything like we were talking a little bit about growth or growth versus value, and I said it's not really that's not really the debate. You know, it's kind of this problem on both sides. So, so with everything, it's nuanced. And I, I, the way I would answer your question is, again, in a nuanced way. Um, it's not a choice of dividend or no dividend, because not all dividends are created equal, and not all companies that pay dividends are, are created equal. The reason, you know, we we already talked a little bit about how dividends add to the total return. It's actual, you know, it's an actual return you can spend. But what we didn't talk about is what the dividends signify, and this goes back to that free cash flow generation, which is so important. Uh, companies that have a history of generating free cash flow growing that free cash flow over time are the ones that tend to have stable and growing dividends because you can't pay that dividend unless your cash flow supports it Um, there are companies that have very high dividend yields for example but don't necessarily have the cash flow to support that dividend And, and while these are high yield companies the likelihood of a dividend cut is significantly higher in those companies and those tend to be more deeper value companies not necessarily uh, companies that can sustain the dividend over a long period of time. So, you know, we're, what we actually value and what we think is the right thing to think about um, when, when you're thinking about dividends and, and you know, protecting on the downside is the companies that um, have payout ratios that are appropriate for their businesses, right? So if you take a generic cyclical company that has a 90% payout ratio um, at peak, well, you know, at trough, that's probably going to be a two hundred plus percent payout ratio, and that's unsustainable. So, if we're investing in a cyclical company, or if one is investing in a cyclical company, you probably want a payout ratio that is much more, um, you know, conducive to what this company would look like over the course of a cycle. Maybe at peak, it's a ten percent payout ratio. On a normal, um, in a normal environment, maybe it's thirty percent, and that, you know, at a trough maybe it goes up to 50 percent or so but they can still maintain that dividend uh, if you think about um, you know a more stable industry say consumer staples for example um, you know these companies might have a 50 60 percent payout ratio however if you look historically the free cash flow would tell you that that's okay because these companies generally you know uh, 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 generally uh, generate a lot of free cash flow year in, year out, um, and it doesn't really change too much. So the stability of that dividend at a higher payout ratio is fine. So you have to think about the payout ratio, if it makes sense for the industry the company is in, as how sustainable that dividend actually is. And it all comes down to, again, that free cash flow generation. If you think about an inflationary environment, if you do not have that consistent free cash flow historically, you probably don't have pricing power, right? And that's why your cash flow is kind of ebbing and flowing. And, you know, it's not maybe the, the, um, the business. If you don't have pricing power in this environment, there is really no way you can maintain your margins. If you, if you think about where we came into this, you know, kind of high inflationary environment, um, most companies had pretty much all-time high corporate margins. Um, and now we're seeing input costs spike up just about everywhere. Uh, it's funny that, you know, every company that we might, uh, meet with as an investor, uh, where I work, they're all going to tell us that they can price. They can price in this environment, but you know, it's, it goes back to my comment about gray hair and being in this industry for 22 years, the majority of managers in their own individual companies have never had to price. So, you know, it's not that it's not that reasonable to expect every company that comes in here has the know-how and, you know, the management capability to price, um, to, 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 drive pricing in this environment. There are companies that have a long-term history of pricing power in any environment. These are the ones that we want to identify. These are the ones that we want, you know, uh, to focus on not companies that, uh, you know, have had no pricing for 20 years, and then all of a sudden, they're they're going to be the the price drivers in the industry. It's just not credible.
1: You know, Matt, it's interesting as you talk about all of these moving parts and and the data shifts so rapidly from day to day, from hour to hour, minute to minute. And I know that many financial professionals obviously are experiencing that as well, especially in light of uh, communicating these changes to clients. And that really brings up the power of a team. And thinking about how do we work together? How do we take in information, process it, and then share it? I'd be curious for those financial professionals listening with us, obviously your team is taking in so much data processing it real time, and then trying to push out messaging and communication. Can you give a little bit of insight about what, what your process looks like, how you rely on your team? Um, because obviously that that's a very rapidly moving train that you all are, uh, aboard right now.
2: So we have a team um, that specifically uh, focuses on the portfolios I work, I work on. Um, However, that's not really our team. Our team is Wellington at large um, and we have an enormous amount of resources here, not only, you know, on the value investing side, but on the macro side on the fixed income side. um, And we tend to have a pretty good in-depth research effort on really what's going on in the world. And, and sometimes, you know, quite honestly, it's too much, right? I mean, in this digital world wherein we have such access to information and, uh, you know, you can get lost in in the trees, right? You'd not see the forest. And so, you know, I think the way I think about my job is trying to take all this information and distill it down to what's important. Um, and not only what's important, but what are the likely ranges of outcomes? And so, as we were entering into this environment, there was the first part of the debate, right outside of growth versus value, the next stage was transient or sticky. And, you know, there's, there's as much research that would tell you last year that it was transient as it was sticky. Um, however, you know, when you think about the potential ranges of outcomes and what's being discounted, um, the market was pretty much at all time highs and we had this potential uh, for this inflationary environment, whether it was transient or sticky, Um, you know, you'd kind of have to make an assessment of that. But if the market's at an all time high and, you know, you're thinking about this inflation being transitory. Well, if if you're right, I'm not sure there's much upside to that. But if you're wrong, there's a potential huge amount of downside. So you you have to marry, you know, not only what you're, what's being discounted today or what's showing up today, but what are those potential ranges of outcomes? And are we adequately reflecting those in the portfolio or how we're structuring somebody's portfolio? Um, you know, when it came to the conversation, um, a couple of things that that we noted here, um, the, you know, the, the inflationary pressure on the wage side um, was something that I would argue was not transitory it never really is once once wage um inflation occurs it's hard to put you know that genie back in the bottle and, and that's actually a good thing um you know but that that would mean that inflation is probably airing more towards the side of sticky than transitory uh, the other thing i would say is you know if you think about the um the transition if you will of um walking or walking driving to your local uh retailer and uh, fighting with all the other parents for those, uh, in in my day, I guess it was a cabbage patch kid, um, you know, fighting for those Christmas, uh, special items, you know, about maybe 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, there was a shift, a big shift online. Um, and it happened fairly quickly. Um, we have some of the, you know, world's most sophisticated logistics companies, not actually being able to forecast that demand. Well, um, and and you know, maybe being a little bit short of capacity. and in in some cases, it took them a few years to actually figure that out. I, I you know I I grew up um, uh, celebrating a different holiday around that time. Um, and so I may be off in in the dating, but I'm pretty sure Christmas has been around for thousands of years, right? or at least hundreds of years. And it took these very sophisticated companies three years to get it right. Um, you know, we shut down. Different parts of the world at different times, all these different industries at different times, turn some of them back on, turn some of them back off. There was no way this supply chain issue was going to be transitory, unless your definition of transitory is something that's like years. Uh, but you know, if you kind of expected things to snap back in six months, I, I think that was a little bit misleading. So, you know, the net of all this is you get all this information coming in. Sometimes the best thing to do is just take a step back from it and just use common sense. Nobody's ever seen what happened in the COVID environment ever before in their lives, whether you're a 70 year plus investor or a two year plus investor. Um, So to think that anybody really knew the outcome, um, I think was a little bit, um, you know, maybe arrogant of the investment world. And so, um, you know, using common sense, it was really likely that know for the the fed or for anybody to get this right would be such a an amazing feat that it wasn't necessarily something i think that we would have based a portfolio on the other thing too is you know we i'll go back to this notion of of protecting on the downside because we haven't had downside in so long um you know i think investors or, you know, people helping people invest forgot what it means to protect on the downside and how powerful that is when it comes to compounding, right? A really simple example is you take a hundred dollar stock, the stock's down 50%. Well, you have to be up a hundred percent from that point just to get back to even. You have a stock that's down, you know, 20%. Well, the makeup there to get back to even is significantly less, um, and and the compounding over a cycle then is superior. And, and there's all kinds of um, you know academic research that would support that. I remember when I was at uh, Penn, there was um, a famous professor there that actually did a lot of that work, um, and that's you know something I learned very early on in my career and the power of compounding and protecting in the downside. So, Matt, I like what you said about range of outcomes,
0: because I think as human beings, we tend to think in black and white. We tend to think value growth, bear bull. You know, it's it's easier that way. But I think listening to you as a portfolio manager, you're often probably thinking about shades of gray. So you mentioned inflation was the big question last year, the big debate. The question these days seems to be recession. And so the question I have for you is, as a portfolio manager, how do you think about uh, the potential for a recession in the United States. And what is the implication then on the kind of companies that you're investigating
2: and investing in? So I think, I think first of all, I think there needs to be a new animal thrown in the mix. I, I think that bull bear is too black and white. So I don't know, maybe there's a wolf in between or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I think that it, if you think about um, a recession and is it likely in the U.S. Uh, or globally, um, I would say it's very likely. I think, you know, in this environment where you have rising interest rates, you have an enormous amount of pressure on, on the oil and gas industry right now and on the food side that I don't see abating anytime soon. Um, you know, factors outside of, you know, any, well, I guess not outside of Russia's control, but, you know, since the Ukraine um, invasion, that has caused an enormous amount of pressure on, on on the ag cycle as well as on the energy cycle. Um, I think that's here to stay for a little while, not necessarily just because of, of Russia, Ukraine, but also because of the lack of drilling to some extent um, in, in an energy transition that will happen over time. That's that's putting some pressure on the supply side. So you do have to weaken demand. Um, some of that will naturally occur. Um, you know, I, I do spend time when I have free time on the water. And I know, um, you know, from a boating uh, perspective, Um, at least the, you know, the fuel dock that I get uh, fuel at is down about 45% year over year. Um, You know, it's having a real impact right now. People are just not using their boats as much. Um, I would imagine that flows through all the way down to cars and and everything else. Um, So that is kind of, you know, clamping down on demand somewhat, but it is very likely, you know, um, a, a, a recession needs to occur here. Um, And that's not a bad thing, given the environment we're in, because if we don't have a recession, you know, what's the outcome, right? We could have a higher inflationary environment with higher unemployment, um, and that is stagflation, and that's the 70s, and that's not an environment we really want to see again. So um, it sounds really awkward to say, but, you know, a, a short, you know, maybe hopefully not too deep recession is actually a good thing here. Uh, what type of companies does that mean uh, we'll look at? Well, quite frankly, it's the same companies we're going to look at in good times. Uh, it's the same companies we're going to look at, um, you know, in 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 really aggressive times. It's those companies that have a long history of generating free cash flow growth, uh, doing smart things with that free cash flow. One of the smart things we like to see is um, giving some of that back to uh, investors in the form of dividends. Uh, and companies that have pricing power; these are the companies that, no matter what the environment is, are going to be fine. You know, they're going to make it through this environment. They'll be able to price to it. Um, these companies also tend to have, uh, you know, reasonably levered balance sheets. They're not underlevered. They're not overlevered. That's a that's an important thing. Um, when you look at some of maybe the more deeper value companies in the market, these tend to. A, maybe have dividends that aren't sustainable, B, might not have that free cash flow generation, C, probably have stretched balance sheets, and let's face it, they're deeper value companies because they're probably not great businesses and they probably don't have the ability to price.
1: Matt, I know you mentioned the broader team at Wellington, and I know that they've done a lot of research around dividend paying stocks. And I'm just wondering if there are a few key bullet points or takeaways that you'd be able to share with us today uh, based upon that breadth and depth of research that the Wellington team has performed over time.
2: So if you think if you know we talked a little bit about the dividend. Companies, the dividend-paying companies, and we mentioned that you know not all dividend-paying companies are created equal. So, if we break it into different buckets, let's talk about dividend cutters, dividend not payers, um, dividend payers, and then dividend growers. If you look at that, those different buckets, and and you go all the way back to you know call it the early '70s, what you'll find is dividend cutters, not surprisingly, were actually some of the worst performers uh, in that environment, and in factually. Have actually detracted value over that period of time. That's a that's about 50 years of detracting value. Um, non-payers would be next. Um, dividend payers have actually been pretty good performers. Mm-hmm. Dividend cutters were the worst performers. Uh, non-payers were the second. Uh, dividend payers did reasonably well, but dividend growers out actually outperformed dividend payers by almost a two to one margin over the last 50 years. Right, so. Um, even though you're paying a dividend, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to generate that same type of return unless you're consistently raising those dividends. And this gets back to that, that free cash flow growth as well. It's all related. Um, so, again, you know, the work that we've done is is basically showing us that um, just paying a dividend and keeping it flat for, say, 10 years is is really not adding that much value at all.
0: So Matt, one of the things we we talked about in terms of shades of gray and cycles and all that, just your thoughts on the importance of fundamental analysis in markets like these, because there are times that we go through where people say fundamental investors are not rewarded, it's different this time, so on and so forth. In markets like this, is there a greater emphasis on the fundamental analysis work that you all do at Wellington?
2: Well, I think in any stress induced environment. um, Well, I'm going to back up a little bit and say in any environment, fundamental research is incredibly important, you really have to know what you're owning, what you're buying. Uh, You know, you really have to think through not only what the potential reward is, but what the risk is. Um, And there's all kinds of examples, you know, on companies you can look at um, to to prove that out. But I would say that um, in, in more stress times, it's not that fundamental research is more important, um, but it's it's certain parts of what you're looking at fundamentally become more important. Um, so you know revenue growth in a in a in a more problematic environment probably is not something I would focus on as much as maybe you know balance sheet leverage, um, or uh, you know that free cash flow generation, or um, the ability to to sustain or maybe even grow margins in more Problematic times, so it's it's not that fundamental research becomes more important. It's just different parts of what you what you might have been looking at historically might change in favor, um, you know, other fundamental things uh, that might have been less important. You know, if you go back um, over the past fifteen years, I would venture to guess that most investors would tell you um, and you know, I I don't think I would have, but uh, most investors would tell you that revenue growth was probably the most important thing to look at. Um, That's obviously shifted. Now everybody is kind of looking more at balance sheets and and free cash flow generation and, and um, you know, uh, the sustainability of the margins.
0: So Matt, you hinted at it a little bit. I'm going to give you an opportunity to show off here and I want to give proper credit. You mentioned that your son had written an essay about fishing. And when you told me that little story, I think it was your son. um, It reminded me of the conversation we just had about fundamentals. And so would you just describe to everybody kind of what that essay was about and how it actually relates maybe to to what you do in your business?
2: So this is this has always been a challenge of mine, right? It's to to somehow uh, my my passion outside of work is being on the water and fishing. And and uh, as we get older and um, uh, you know, we think about our careers where we're asked to do lessons learned um, at Wellington for some of the younger investors. And I've always tried to relate it back to fishing. And I haven't been that successful at it, but my son seems to have been. So um, that was basically, uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time um, in our free time um, fishing for tuna fish offshore. Um, and, you know, one of the first things I taught him was that the majority of the fish are actually caught before you leave the dock. And and that sounds weird, right? Because we're going out 70 miles, and so how could you catch a fish that far away? But what I mean by that is, you really have to do the research as to where you're gonna fish before you actually go out. And, you know, the ocean is very big. When you're offshore, there's really no structure around. Uh, You know, we fish the canyons, which is a big drop off. Uh, But what's important there is, you know, what are the sea temperatures? What's the sea salinity? And we can look at all that before we even leave the dock. So even though we might be going 70, 100 miles offshore, um, we're targeting probably an area that's, you know, maybe a quarter mile in total. Um, and we know exactly where we want to go before we leave the dock. That's doing the work. But, you know, that's just part of it, right? Because we're also going 70, to 100 miles offshore. I mean, if God forbid something happens, no one's coming to get us. Uh, at least not for a long time. So you also have to make sure that you are thinking about every potential risk out there, and making sure that you are, um, you know, aware of all the risks and taking the precautions uh, before you even leave the dock. And so, you know, to me, that's that's thinking about the potential range of outcomes. If I think about a stock um, that has twenty percent upside and ten percent downside. Well, mathematically, that's really no different than a company that has a hundred percent upside and fifty percent downside. It's a two-to-one ratio. Uh, the range of outcomes on the second—the uh, hundred percent upside, fifty percent downside—is probably so wide I, I could drive my boat through it. I would much rather invest in that company that, um, you know, is twenty percent upside, ten percent downside. That, to me, is not only the same risk reward, but a much less volatile uh, structure and. Fewer potential ranges of outcomes, and that you know is kind of what my son wrote his essay on, and um, you know he did a good job of it. I might plagiarize it and actually use it for uh, my lesson learned at some point.
0: I thought it sounded pretty good, Matt, and it'll keep me reminded <laughs> of the conversation we just had for sure.
1: Absolutely, I think that's a great story, and you know, and the work that that John and I do with financial professionals, we're constantly encouraging them to craft their own stories and examples. Uh, regarding many different topics. And so I think for those listening with us today, we would encourage you to uh, craft your dividend story and and see how you might uh, articulate that to clients and and continue to educate them during these unprecedented times. And we just can't thank you enough, Matt, for your time today and the education and the insight. And thank you for all the work that you and your team at Wellington are doing.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube.
0: And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Talk to you soon.